two, three, one, and recording. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Matthew Martinez on Talk with a Doc. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I am honored today. I have Dr. Tessa Little with me. And Tessa, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, first, yes, a great honor to you as well, Matt. Um, we've been talking quite a few years now. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of an introduction to myself. I um, am a PhD um, biological scientist in biochemistry. I uh, did my PhD at VIT, so I've been in South Africa doing my research. Um, and then my background is pretty much has been in uh, the medical sciences. I got involved with the Baragonov Hospital, um, which is a hospital in Johannesburg. And my work began to start focusing on HIV and immunology and respiratory viruses. And then from there, I uh, started going into more the question of how important is nutrition Mm. and asking deeper questions of how can we support people that are immune deficient. Right. And um, yeah, that work, I had a lot of insights in that time in my life. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of started moving out in, on my own in terms of the research, doing postdoctoral work and moving between universities, following where the money is and the good science. And that's been my journey in academia mostly. Yeah. And now I'm a business owner. Well, I, I think that's a, a, quite an evolution and it gives you wonderful insight. Now, how is it? I'm, I'm going to break away toward the business side for a moment and then I want to go back to virology. But how is it being a business owner now, um, especially with everything that's going on in the world and with your background as a scientist, how are you applying that? What, what are you getting into? So I was very fortunate to be, um, for a while, considering the root causes of our problems that we're facing. Right. And being a business owner, I can mobilize those solutions mm-hmm. and finding the right sort of people who are more interested in sort of executing, executing yeah. and actually applying so it's in real life and I enjoy that. So academia is great for inquiry but you don't always get to activate and see the real solutions. So as a business owner right now with what's been going on, I was very fortunate to be in a position where I saw it coming mm-hmm. and my businesses are positioned to be prepared for these t- types of scenarios where, you know, agricultural activities are really important and absolutely supporting people's immune systems and the education behind that and trying to encourage people to be sort of more empowered and sovereign right. in taking care of their health and, and helping, you know, the farmers. So I think my businesses are integrated in that way. I think so there's that's been wonderful. a drive towards that. This has been a catalyst right. for our businesses to actually do better. This, I, I think this is a wonderful evolution. And um, I'm always encouraged when I have physician friends, scientist friends that are able to move into from academia to the private sector. And the reason why is because the, the connection between academia and the private sector, a lot of times there's a big space. I don't know if you agree with that. Like there, ac- there is. Yeah, academia is. has grants and funding, and most of the research comes from academia. And then we have, you know, for lack of a better term, we have the 
agriculture or the doers, the, the private business owners out there that have loads of information, but it's difficult to compete with academia. But what I've found is a lot of times in the private sector, there is critical information that's being uh, omitted for whatever reasons. And if we were able to combine academia with the private sector, I think we would have some, some beautiful outcomes, especially in agriculture. I agree. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have met business owners who have been doing uh, research with universities yeah. for up to 30 years. Um, and it's not an easy relationship. It takes no. a special kind of business owner <laughs> it does, yeah. with an inquisitive mind, but understanding how to activate it into a commercial product. Right. Um, well, I remember when I just finished my PhD and I was looking around for work in South Africa going, well, why are there no biotech companies in South Africa, mm-hmm. considering we're sitting with a huge problem here? And I had to watch that space for about 15 years where it wasn't closing. It was actually the gap was widening. Right. And only in the last sort of five to seven years have I really seen more biotech companies emerging here in South Africa. Yeah. So for us, we were suffering um, a broader gap than what we've been seeing overseas. I've been seeing that gap closing quite a lot. Um, in our field abroad. Oh. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the way it should be. I, I I would love to see a time in the world where academia and the private sector are working towards a better humanity. That that, that is the focus. That is and of course products, you know, and capitalism sales, that drives a lot of the private sector. But I think combining the two is essential. And when two minds meet that are, I I believe this, when two minds meet that are really in that space to do some great work, you find great things that are accomplished. And as you know, in agriculture, we have such a broad uh, understanding or traditions that come to agriculture and getting the biotech industry, science industry into help. And I'm not just talking about GMO. I'm talking about cultivation. I'm talking about natural pesticides. I'm talking about ways to to grow food that uh, we're not even looking at yet. And I think combining the private sector and academia with this, I think we have a better chance. What do you think? Absolutely. I'm actually getting to see that farmers want to see results and they're happy to collaborate and help um, universities do some of this research. And that's my experience here where I am in Stellenbosch in the Western Cape, South Africa. And other times I've seen, in my experience, I can only really speak from my experience, Mm -hmm. is uh, my cousin's a farmer, Mm -hmm. a very smart person. And they do reach out. They do go to the academics and ask for advice, but they find very often the academics so deeply down a rabbit hole that they haven't thought about an application that would be right. an immediate decision a farmer has to make in the next two weeks. Right. And that's <laughs> so the true. gap that I got to see there, yeah. whereas when you're doing innovation and you're trying to solve bigger problems, um, investors get interested in that, and then they right. sort of want to have a, a different vision. And I think... We're getting much more educated through the documentaries that have been sort of released in the last 10 years where people are recognizing we actually have a very serious problem with our soils, our yes. diversity. And that's driving people to say, wait, this is not going to last the way we're doing it. 
And right. I've seen more and more doors open between industry and universities willing to collaborate and find other solutions for the problem that we have with food security. Right. That's a very big theme here in South Africa, water and food security. Now, why do you think that is? With so much resource that's there in South Africa, why do you think that there is a problem with, with uh, the food and water? Well, I mean, we're in a fairly dry country. Yeah. We're considered a low rainfall region, even though we're good producers. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that we do export a lot of our stuff. Um, I'm not sure, like that aware of our broader picture here, but I've noticed that the universities play a major role in that focus. And we are earmarked as one of those countries around the world that we have scarcity in, in terms of water, so we have to manage things as efficiently as possible mm-hmm. for the population size that we have. So we kind of collaborate and we can draw funds into doing work like that. And I think South Africans are very connected with nature in terms of the wildlife around us. And I have noticed that we have a flair of protecting the wildlife and the beauty that we have here. So there is that as well, where there's this love and care for wanting to have that connection and then thinking of the bigger, bigger, broader picture of sustainability. I think that's really an, an important direction that everybody in every country in the world needs to take. You know, I heard a quote um, years ago when I was in South Africa, and, and I have to say I, I was blown away by the beauty. I was very fortunate I got to travel uh, many different places, and um, the raw beauty of South Africa, it, it really did take my breath away. I, I, was, I was blown away. I, I, I want to come back. And... Um, and what I did notice is how rich your soil is. You know, I was able to visit some farms. I was able to see um, the, the content of the minerals that are, are in certain places. And, but as you did mention, you know, if we do a lot of um, mo- modern farming techniques, the, the soil does become depleted. But there is so much resource. And, and the water is... Um, this is something that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, and then we're going to go. We're going to seg off here into immunity. But I do know that there is a correlation between the amount of food, the, the quantity of food, the quality of the food, and the health, the general health of, the, of citizens of a certain country. And what is the general health, do you, in your opinion, of the average South African? Wow, okay, I'm gonna take a bit of a journey. 10 years ago, my evaluation was um, that we were eating a lot of processed food. Right. Um, the food nutrition was quite low. You mm. could taste it in the food. It didn't have that much flavor and richness. Right. It was definitely becoming more dilute in its taste. And then we're very aware that our soil is very depleted in selenium, mm-hmm. and that has a big factor towards higher risks for um, HIV patients. Right. And the virus sort of not being kept under, I don't know, check. Um, we, do, we do have very rich iron soil. So our food grown in certain regions, we get um, different benefits. So we're lucky to have to be in a large country where we can have diversity of our minerals. Right. And we do move that food around. But generally speaking, um, the staple diet was meat. And millipap is something that um, it's quite a staple in our African society. Yeah. And that's been a bit of an issue because they don't get the 
the minerals and the vegetables and the, the, the vitamins right. they should be getting, and they're certainly not getting their flavonoids in, right. your vitamin P's. And we started seeing that when I was studying and looking at the, the general health. And just cooking practices were actually a huge issue. Right. Um, the way people were preparing their foods, even their farms, living in the cities, um, not knowing how to cook properly for themselves, not knowing how to take care of themselves, especially the youth. The, the health would decline, and there was a problem. There was definitely a problem in the health back then. But now there's been an explosion in terms of the African community really taking care of their diet and going to the ketogenesis diets. And I find that fascinating because that is I, fascinating. I obviously had missed that wave. <laughs> and um, somebody was like tapping me on the shoulder going, go and have a look at this webpage. And I'm like, what? That's amazing. Yeah. The transition yeah. that I'm seeing in people is phenomenal. So there's a general awakening happening around the world, and South Africans have taken that on, which is so encouraging, which Absolutely means there's going to be is. more people buying next, the next quality level food, which means more of our sustainable and organic growing is going to be supported. Right. I, I see that as and, well. Absolutely. And, you know, throughout the world. Yeah, it, it's something. Anyways, the, the quote that I heard when I was in South Africa, and it touched my heart, was that South Africans, they say the greatest resource there are the people. And when I heard that, I remember looking at that person, and I said, that might be the best thing I've ever heard, visiting every country I've ever visited, that South Africans really feel that the greatest resource are the people. And... You know, I, I, like I said, it touched me. And I started to think about that. And if that truly is a focus of, of a country, of, of our citizens, you know, humans, that we look at life, at human life, life in general, animal life, earth life, that that really is our greatest resource. Do you think that the way that we take care of ourselves would change? You know, i.e. diet, exercise, the way we grow our food, you know, uh, what companies we support. Do you think that, that that has a lot to do with what's going on in South Africa? That they, people really believe that human or, or the people there are the greatest resource? Or am I taking that the very wrong way? Yeah. <laughs> very interesting, Honor. We're very conflicted yeah. at this stage um, where there's also we're very warm people that is known and very, very we're true. open and friendly and I love the African community I come from sort of the Scotland and Ireland my family so mm. genetically and our hereditary habits are quite different to the African community but I feel blessed having lived here because um, the African community is very warm very touchy very feeling yeah and they're very centered around a matriarchal system and there was a lot I had to learn when I was in Baraguana working there. And they're very community-based, um, very much like the Italians are. And yes, they do treat each other with a lot of respect in that way, and yet there's another side to us that um, also needs work. So we, we have things to work on. Right. To really make that point that you, you've mentioned really work for us. Yeah. And um, 
it's difficult to do that when we have a very corrupt government. It's very difficult to <laughs> yeah. do things when we don't have bureaucracy on the ground right. taking care of our everyday things. Right. Food parcels that were handed out to the poor people during this period of time was getting kind of siphoned off to people who didn't need it. Uh, or people working in government that kind of siphoned it off elsewhere. So that level of corruption is really hurting us at the ground. Right. And we've, we've got so many things to deal with and, and problems to sort out that yeah. we have enough entrepreneurial spirit, there's enough willingness to work through this. And there's a lot of charities, especially from the farmers, who are still willing to find a solution in this because they do understand that they are absolutely key component and we do respect each other in that way i have seen that um when we we, i think it's a very interesting point that you've made and i've never really thought about it but if i think about we do really focus on relationships first i mean a lot of my relationships and interactions that i have here in south africa is about how we are treating each other right which which is what it's all about in my opinion and it's um i've been blessed i've been able to travel a, a great extent of the world into different countries. And my background is I grew up in Latin America, uh, part of the U.S., Hawaii mainly. And my family are, are agriculture. My father's a medical doctor, but also we had agriculture. So I grew up farming. And what shocked me so much coming from Latin America, Latin America, especially Ecuador, where I grew up, we have so much food. Um, everything grows there. It's volcanic soil. We have high rainfall. We have high elevation to low elevation. So we can, the variety of food that we can grow is, is immense. And, you know, you go to the market and you see food stacked six to, to seven meters high. I'm not joking. And I, I love when I bring people from different places in the world and they go, my God, you have so much food here. But the thing in our culture is, you grow food. Everybody learns to grow food. It doesn't matter if you're in the city or you're in the country. Everybody has this sense of, I, I love to grow things. Seeds are, are almost a currency in, in some parts of Ecuador. And, and I think that that is such an important gift to give. In fact, for me, even when I was going to, to medical school and lived in the city, I had my little potted plants in my little apartment and I grew herbs, I grew things. It, was, it, it just is part of me. And I think that we've lost a little bit of that, um, of that identification as humans that live on this planet, that our connection to the planet is, is not only magnetism through our physiology, but there is a connection when you grow things. And, and you can probably understand that, Tessa, very much. And I've noticed that we have lost that as a community of, of people around the world. But I did notice in South Africa that I met quite a few farmers that are just, they love farming and they are so into it and, and you know, learning how their environment works and, and how, what they can do to be better producers and more quality producers. And like you said, I think that's the change. And I love to see that. I love to see that we're coming together and wanting to understand biodynamic growing, you know, uh, as the, the next evolution from organic growing and how science can can really help that. Now, I know you've been working on some things that can really help with the organic and biodynamic side. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so my business is actually focused on um, nanobubbles, 
Yeah. And it was a little discovery I made 10 years ago when I was um, playing around in the lab and I was just testing something for a company. But I never forgot that lesson that I, I got to see there. And only recently did somebody encourage me and say, well, let's, let's look at this. Very cool. As a business model, as a solution. And I still have actually a pretty good idea. So I kind of named the company 10 years ago, but it really birthed itself about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And we're looking at how we can help with um, water remediation, um, treating the water for drinking. And it's um, basically what it is, is gas that's contained in water in these tiny little bubbles that are in nanometer size. And what's so unique about nanobubbles is that they will stay in the water for up to months even. And they release their gas very slowly. So if you use up the gas that's dissolved in the fluid, um, over time, whatever gets used, little bubbles start to release the, the gas that's inside them. So they can be like reserves and carriers. That's so cool. And one of the biggest problems that we have is we don't have enough of that oxygen anymore in our water. Right. So that has a way of impacting now your microbes in your soil, the ecosystem in your rivers and your lakes. And what we're finding is with this technology, if we do it intelligently in a systems approach, we can try and rehabilitate an area more quickly than if we had to come from one angle, let's say, introducing the bacteria back into the environment. Now, we have to have to also bring in the right environment for it. And we know now that the nanobubble is a very good way of doing that, where we can even get the bottom of a lake to be revived again. That's so fantastic. And um, we've seen this work in harbors. Uh, very large lakes. Um, so this has gone international. Mm-hmm. Um, Nanobubbles is also in America. So my involvement has been sort of working with um, in aquaculture. And then I, I went to a biodynamic farm and we said, let's go for it. Let's see if nanobubbles makes a difference in the practices of biodynamic farming. Right. We just did a little trial. But there's that interest where very often you can take a purist or you can sort of take a society that may have a purist ideal in biodynamic farming and say, but, you know, there's a place for technology. And that was welcomed in that relationship, That's which so I cool. really like as well. Oh, yes. And um, because of my interest in biophysics from my PhD days and it's been rebirthed, that's the joy I get also of interacting with um, farmers and from various walks of life to talk about how exciting our world is that if you start working with a type of technology, you can really interface at the level of physics where there's going to actually be an impact. They do interface with each other. We know that things at the nano level right. start having quantum properties. And we're seeing that nanobubbles, their behavior in the nano size was completely unpredictable. It took the scientific community like 10 years to grapple with the fact that they actually do exist. <laughs> I love that. Now, so, yeah, that, those it, are the kind of solutions that yeah. we can see that can really work in South Africa. So we can use less water to do the things we need to do. That's what I, that's my question was going to be. So on a in a place where water is is difficult or it's there's there's a scarcity, this could really help to manage that scarcity. Is that correct? Yes, and also to manage energy. Yeah. So we can um, use less gas to do the function that we need to. Uh-huh. Also use less energy to drive it 
as a technology, so it falls within sustainability for both the farmer and the cost that he has having to lay out, so his operational costs. So when we talk about sustainability, we're also looking at the viability for businesses to stay afloat, considering how our economy has been struggling. Um, So that really works for farmer. Now, now my question is, if you are an average farmer in the U.S., and let's say you're growing grapes for wine, how would your nanobubbles impact their growing, and how could it potentially help them to have a better product? Interesting question. We're yeah. still very much in the early phases of seeing the impact, but what we have seen so far from very small trials is that the citrus content would change, mm. it would increase. And in my trial, I got to see how the size of the grapes, the berries, matured. And so it had an effect on the, the glucose content. So we haven't fully interpreted all that data. Um, but what we have seen, for instance, is maize growing and with some of the um, pumpkins, that they were larger. Mm-hmm. So we st- we're still in the early phases. Um, there was a guy in Mexico that started playing with the nanobubbles and had some interesting results. So this area here is very new. It's very, um, very interesting as well. It is. Yeah. It's going to come out of it. <laughs> well, this, this is the type of passion that I love to see in you know a scientist like you that's out doing this great work that's out changing things and um you know i I can pick up you know as soon as you started talking about the nano bubbles you felt that energy shift and i i know you know as being an inventor and and somewhat of a scientist myself it it, there is that passion that goes into it. it it's um you know i call it i opened up to the divine or to the universe and basically i feel like i'm being downloaded and then i go to work and i try to um, unravel, if you may, what I've been downloaded with and seeing if I can make it happen um, here at, at this time. And it seems to me like your nanobubbles, especially with what water is now, and um, you know, I'm going to speak about this. It, it is so interesting to me growing up, and I, I don't know if you remember when we were growing up, I didn't see a lot of bottled water. There, you know, going into the stores, doing, there just wasn't a lot of bottled water out there. And it seems in about the last 20 years that most, especially in America, in the U.S., um, that most people are drinking bottled water on a, on a consistent uh, basis. Now, as a physician, I, there's many uh, things about that that I don't like. Is there a possibility for human consumption with nanobubbles and there to be um, health benefits with this? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, I, I this am is getting cool involved stuff. in that. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Uh, so it's also the gas you choose to put in there. Right. So there's, there's a lot of benefits to be had. And I think we have to be taking that in context of our own scenario of what's going on in our body. And, you know, nature produces nanobubbles naturally by right. crushing the water down in a waterfall, um, the way they flow down the river. Right. And that laminar flow creates something else. And then that drives off the minerals of the rocks. Absolutely. That is really your ideal water. Yeah. The nanobubbles is replacing, to some extent, only a part of the story, not the complete story. Right. And so, yes, in consumption of, let's say, oxygen nanobubbles, mm. um, studies have shown that you can increase the person's um, oxygen levels in their blood. And 
what I'd be very interested to see is, like, for instance, in this coronavirus scenario, we're right. seeing hypoxia as a bit of an issue. Mm-hmm. So what if people who are just having a few problems with their oxygen levels dropping, what if the nanobubbles could have helped them a little bit? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. that's something I would definitely look into, but obviously being cautious about the metal content in a person and their blood. Um, yeah. That's still fun things to check. But those are my ways of thinking, and for athletes, um, sometimes you want to have a little bit of oxidative stress for the adaptation in your body to um, get fit again. Yeah. Through the recovery and the, the healing process, it's absolutely essential to have that slight oxidative stress. Right. And that's where you could play that role. Yeah. And then you've got the people who are using hydrogen. Right. And now, how that works. Well, yeah. do, you, do you mind taking a moment to explain that a little bit? I think this is really interesting as well. Yeah, so there's, there's been studies a long time ago talking about something called atomic hydrogen. Right. And that term got a little bit lost and got borrowed. And then the scientific papers started talking about hydrogen gas in water. So when you introduce hydrogen gas as a nanobubble into the water, now you've got this reducing potential. You're sort of taking out the fire, you're taking out the oxidative stress, you're taking, um, you're adding electrons to your system. Right. So therefore you can cope with inflammation and the stress and your, your fascia is going to get flushed with this. And that could be very good for um, movement and so forth. So lymph movement. But one okay. has to be very careful how we do that because the body needs a balance. It wants a, a middle point to work with. If you go one extreme, it could be harmful. But if you go to the other extreme of the oxygen, it also could be harmful long term. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to be careful about the science is to know there's a place to work in the middle. Right. And my interest has been always how can we measure that in a person? so that we know what to give them or give ourselves that will fit our scenario of what we actually need. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how is water as a, as a delivery system in physiology? What, what have you seen as far as the quality of water that's consumed, um, I, even in agriculture, and the differences? I mean, obviously, I, I, I know this. I just want to hear but what, what have you seen in the difference of quality of water that you've been working with as far as impact on immune system, impact on soil health, impact on the general population? Wow, that's a very big topic. That, right? that is. It, it is. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, we're going to have to have part two. <laughs> minerals and all of this. So one of the main things is when we want to have water that can be absorbed we would want something that has an ability to have the efficiency of going in. Right. And there's a lot of controversy and a lot of hypotheses at the moment to what is all of those mechanisms, and we hear this term very often, structured water. Yeah. And what does that really mean? And, you know, you're going to be hung if you're going to be a scientist going into that area because oh, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a topic where you're going to have credibility. And so you're taking a risk if you go into that area. But thankfully, we have a lot of warriors out there that have done it and have really shown us the way and taken the lead. And it's really broad or another way that's coming. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is water that gets exposed to lavender flow, that gets exposed to infrared and minerals, that can help it lose that um, very high surface tension by dropping it and making right. it soft. That really helps the absorption of water. And water doesn't just diffuse in us. 
No. It, 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 gets, it has to be actively taken up. Yeah. And what's interesting, it, it gets taken up with a, another molecule, and a lot of people don't realize this. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's also nutrition. Now, now, what is um, that other, Dr. Dr. Little, water. what is that other mineral that it needs? This is, this is important. It's, it's glycine. Very good, it's glycine. yeah. And, and how many of, no. of, would you say, in the average population in the world, uh, people are glycine deficient? That I don't know. I, I, I can know. answer that. <laughs> you know, I don't know what you've seen. I've never yeah. looked at it that way, I must be honest. It's a good question. Yeah, it, it's. Yeah, well, um, you tell me. Well, you the doctor. Well, what, what is what is glycine? We'll explain that really quickly. What what is glycine? That's one of the building blocks to proteins. It's Got a, it. Yeah. It's an amino acid. It's an amino acid. And it's one of the simplest forms of yeah, an amino acid. It's the simplest amino acid that we get. Right, and and without proper nutrition, as far as getting those amino acids, those building blocks. And you, I find as a physician, many people are not only glycine deficient, but they're glutamine deficient. They're, you know, we can get into neurotransmitters that have to be built from amino acids. And the reason is our protein quality has degraded uh, very badly. And most, unfortunately, are afraid of meat products, which I don't blame them because of hormones, different things that are in them. And so I find with a lot of patients that... Um, most are very carbohydrate uh, rich in their diet. Uh, we find that around the world, and protein is is minimal. And this is something I, I speak about a lot. The word protein is a Greek word, and it means of most important. And you know, I'm not talking about you know getting 300 you know grams of protein a day or even 200. You know, I'm talking about getting adequate uh, protein. And and we find that there is there is a a fear behind getting those amino acids into the body. And so I find dehydration is absolutely rampant, even among, you know, um, first world countries. And I, this is so important to talk about because it, it seems to me that what we're doing here is talking about the absorption of water and what water can do in the body and delivery systems. And now we're getting into micronutrients and, um, or macros, excuse me. And, People don't even understand those concepts of micro and macronutrients, which I find is, is, it's almost appalling as a doctor because you think that we would be giving this information to grade schoolers. Here, you have a body. Here's the manual for your body. You're going to have this body the rest of your life. These are the rules. <laughs> and if you follow these, you're going to be generally very healthy. And uh, I always laugh. We give, you know, when you buy a car, you get a manual. You buy a refrigerator, you get a manual. You buy a microwave, you get a manual. But unfortunately, with your body, we don't, we don't give one. And um, th- this is so important, I think, the work that you're doing, uh, Tessa, and how this can... Now, I'm going to ask another question here. <laughs> how, how do you find that, as a scientist, and understanding biochemistry and understanding how systems of physiology work, why do you think we have so many... Um, I guess, nutritional deficiencies around the world, even in first world countries? So I can share from my personal experience of research um, and I'll take it home to South Africa in what I got to see. Um, It's no different from our situation that we have with our soil is that we're losing diversity. And with that, 
we're not able to process all the complex food that we need to absorb. So we need our gut bacteria to right. assimilate the very nutrients we need. So that's the first place. Mm-hmm. And the glyphosate does appear to have caused tremendous damage. Just yes. to give an example, we use it quite a lot. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, the African people here have maize as a staple diet. Right. And we're suspecting that there's a potential that the glyphosate is incredibly high right. in the maize. And what if that is the case? Um, then we're starting to cause potential disruption in the gut lining with the glyphosate causing that inflammation. Now we've got this leaky gut syndrome. Right. And one thing we got to learn in my field was HIV actually harbors in the gut. It's a gut viral disease that sort of harbors in that area. We actually started to find that we had more viral particles lining in the gut than other regions of the body. And we started asking the question, why in South Africa do we have like a major problem? And it's actually South Africans that eat maize in a unique way compared to the rest of Africa. They ferment their maize, they don't have the bleach, they don't have the glyphosate nearly as much. And so we started to question, could this be one of the biggest problems? Because we know that inflammation helps the vicious circle of the HIV viral um, particle to start replicating itself Mm -hmm. up in its numbers, causing a problem and then causing chronic inflammation and then more diseases would come out for them. The other thing we got to see is that lack of nutrient intake started to impinge on their immune system. And I came up with this hypothesis when I was working in Barris saying, you know, maybe there's a deficiency in arginine uptake. And then I had a colleague at working at WITS and he started coming up with this understanding of the mechanism of action of that. And I said, but this adds up to the story that we're seeing with HIV patients because I could see the body wasn't capable of teaching the immune system, hey, this is a foreign particle, can you please develop antibodies for this? Yeah. And we found that there wasn't this specificity in the HIV patients. We just saw them producing this weak army that didn't know what it was supposed to like latch onto. So they didn't have a functional role to really play. And we saw that even arginine uptake would play a major role in that effectiveness of having an immune system that can operate correctly. And I was always questioning, I was saying, I wonder what it would be like if we actually implemented nutritional regimes and I was so surprised when I got together with a homeopath and we said, hey, let's do a talk. Yeah. And we did something at one of the universities. Um, we did a back-to-back talk. We didn't know what each other was really going to talk about. We knew it was going to be about HIV mm-hmm. and nutrition. And then she showed her results and how she was managing HIV patients, having to sort of manage their nutrient intake, managing their lifestyles, so much so that they could get the viral load to drop in their body that they didn't have to go on ARVs. She got patients on that course for five, ten years. It was unbelievable. And then I started sharing the insights that I was getting, um, looking at from a nutrient perspective and from an inflammation perspective of the virus. And... I kept saying, yeah, oh, no, selenium's really important. And she would say, yes, when I gave my patient selenium, I started seeing really good results. Yeah, and our soil is deficient in selenium. So there were these sort of things that were tying in into a very coherent story. And our audience was actually the social workers mm-hmm. that said, you know, we've been looking for scientists and doctors that would talk about this. Right. Who, who could actually guide us because right. then we 
to translate what you're saying into the language that the people will understand. And they understand the complexity of their own society to know how to implement this that will be highly effective. And there was 40 of them in the audience, and they were the people that came to our talk. Other than that, my colleagues at the time, some of them, were like laughing at us, going, what is this homeopathy? This is ridiculous. This is not real science. And right. when does nutrition play a major role in the immune system? What? It was really a paradigm shift that hadn't taken place yet. It, it always baffles yet, me how we have educated scientists who you know that have had biochemistry. And that's always the argument, like, well, how is nutrition going to do anything? And I sometimes just have a blank look on my face where I go, do you not remember biochemistry in any regard? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I thought that that would be important for people to hear. It's critical. It is. um, I'll tell you where we can go with this is how you related with me now. You're Mm. talking about how you fell in love with this divine part of the science, how it takes you to this divine nature that's going on around us. Right. So many of us in our field, I remember when I was doing my PhD, we used to go outside and have our coffees and talk about the biophysics, Mm -hmm. the the intelligence of the life system. There was this dialogue that was taking place about how does natural healing occur? How does energy healing work? We were so fascinated. And I think if you really delve deeply into this world and have a questioning mind, you're going to naturally end up finding this beautiful communion with yourself with nature and as a teacher and you start seeing and learning everywhere around you wait this is such a huge opportunity to be in communion with life and see the beauty and be enthralled by that and there's a persuasion in certain people to be in that particular way and I sort of say it's a heart-centered way of life it's appreciating others it's appreciating you know our context and there are those who I have interacted with that feel that they are incredibly good at constructing the most intelligent sentences with the most complex words. And I get lost because there's no picture arriving in my head to say, but how do you understand this works? And yeah. that, I think, sometimes is what happens, is that we've got all these different personalities going into a profession. And so if there's a certain persuasion that there's a dominance in, in a way we've been encouraged to think, that could start causing a shift where we start having a society that thinks it's going to solve the solutions in a particular way, a certain paradigm. Yeah. And I think the movies we watch, I think we all influenced by environment. I think there's something that happened quite a while back where we were getting channeled into a very narrow, very small tunnel of thinking and a specialist as a scientist and that's a danger. Absolutely. And I've seen many of my colleagues step out of that and then have a more systems approach. Yeah. And so I think we need an evolution to happen, yeah. I, I th- yes, we do. And I, I, do, I do feel like it is happening. Uh, I do feel like people are, are waking up and I, unfortunately I do feel because it's out of necessity that, um, that you know, and, and this is no offense to the scientific community at all. I, I just, like you said, I think we get stuck in tradition. We get stuck in modes of thinking, and it, it's so. I think sometimes the most powerful things are simple things. They're just truth. It just is. They're they're a law, and I think we forget those things, and and we tend to try to look for other solutions that 
may be presenting, and unfortunately I, I, I am going to say this, be presenting more at a way to make income rather than it is for the good of the whole, which I get that that is capitalism. And we have to understand that that that, that is a reality. But what I, I love hearing here, Tessa, is that you are seeing it change. You're seeing the average person want to know more. I mean, these nano bubbles are are absolutely amazing. And so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna we we have about five minutes left here. I don't like to go over fifty minutes with the guests because they are listeners because they uh they say statistically people stop listening in about forty five minutes. So <laughs> so anyways, um, but what I wanted to talk about is is COVID nineteen the coronavirus that's happening and our medical scientific community are all over the place with how this particular virus is being transmitted uh, what is what is the outcome what what are the symptom symptomology how are we combating it uh, you know medically there there are so many different things that are that are out there that i don't think the average person has an idea of what they can do on a daily basis to to protect themselves. Now, I've always been a big proponent of micronutrients, building up the immune system, learning what nutrients de- directly affect the, the uh, immune system, but also not overlooking all the other nutrients that you need to create uh, homeostasis and an optimum wellness in the body. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious from a medical standpoint is how we can get these nanobubbles out to people now especially with delivering oxygen into the system and the hypoxia, hypoxia, excuse me, the hypoxic effects that are happening with coronavirus. And, you know, I mean, this can lead into COPD. This can lead into uh, to other pathologies as well. But I, I just feel as a physician, I would love to see this out now <laughs> for people. As well. Yeah. I'd love to as well. And I'm working on that as much as possible. Um, you know, we have limitations because there's still safety to consider. Right. And I need to be cautious because I've been doing my literature research and I'm concerned that we might be having higher iron levels um, in the cases of these severe cases. Yes, yes. And I have to think very carefully, is this really a solution? Can we really deliver oxygen directly in the blood? That would be safe enough and not cause other side effects that could exacerbate the situation. Right. So... Um, I have been thinking and going, oh, it would be lovely just to do this. And then there's a cautious side as well, as a scientist having a responsibility to think of the other factors mm-hmm. and, and looking at it from a broad perspective. And I would like to say that I'm definitely working on it. Excellent. And we are trying to accelerate that as much as possible because it's going to have the application in the future well, what? Um, for many other scenarios in ICU anyway. For yeah tissue organ damage and when people are actually in ICU, we, we actually have an idea of where we can bring that in. That's so that's so important and so needed. Now, if, if I'm an investor and I'm listening to this podcast, how do I get a hold of you? I have a, a website that's about to launch, but I have an email address. Okay. And it's tessa at za. And oxygenesis is spelled with a O X I G E N E S I S. Excellent. And um, yeah, because we're at that stage where we're looking for clinical trials and doing the basic safety studies. We have a product that we could get to the market quite quickly. 
and we're having very serious talks about how to activate this. Um, and with my background in the Redox Systems Biology, I think it'll be backed up with very good science. And I think the company that's busy developing this has recognized that. And so it's been a, it's going to be a great opportunity. I think so, too. We can too. take this forward. I think so, too. Uh, Dr. Little, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I want to do another one with you. Uh, listeners out there, please look into this. Uh, look into micronutrients. Um, and uh, we'll definitely have Dr. Little on, on the show again. Thank you, everyone out there. Thank you, Tessa. Thank you. Okay. And we 